welcome to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandu. In today's episode, I talk to David Bandersky about the media landscape, internet, and state censorship in China. David is adjunct lecturer and researcher at the Journalism Media Studies Center at the University of Hong Kong. He is also the co-director of the China Media Project, an independent research program which fosters dialogue on key issues in Chinese media and communications, and monitors breaking developments in the field. David has written for many publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Far Eastern Economic Review. Well, David, thank you very much for joining us today uh, on the Global Futures Podcast. Thanks for having me. So, our listeners know that you are the co-director of uh, China Media Project. Uh, tell us how you started and what you're trying to achieve with uh, CMP. Uh, well, it, um, it it started before actually I arrived in in Hong Kong. That was in 2004. Uh, but the year before that, 2003, had been a, a really huge year for, for Chinese media. Um, and long story short, you know, we had SARS, we had the Swindergong affair. I won't go into the details of this, but, you know, a big investigative report from uh, Southern Metropolis Daily in Guangzhou. And there was a lot of reporting that I think surprised uh, people uh, in China and outside China. Said, "Well, hey, what? Where is all this media activity coming from? We think of China as a space where the media is controlled, and we only think of control. Um, so, how do we explain this investigative reporting that's happening? This focus on hard news, etc." even in an environment where control is, formally speaking, really strict. You know, it was kind of a contradiction. So the genesis of the project in, in 2003 uh, with uh, Chen Gang, you know, as a still co-director uh, and a former newspaper editor, and Ying Chan, at the time the head of the journalism school at Hong Kong U, was to kind of pick apart these trends and look at them systematically and, and, and see what are the dynamics that are driving this uh, change in the media. So, you know, more than a decade later, <laughs> 14 years later, um, there's a lot of change we could talk about uh, even since that time. Talking about change and the media, I, I want to just look at the uh, landscape, the media landscape in China. We've seen like a rapid growth of uh, digital news uh, and, and new media around the world. And China is no uh, exception to this. More and more people are using internet to get information. And big companies that provide internet-related services uh, and products like Tencent, which are very popular in China, are, are growing. Do you think traditional uh, media such as uh, radio, news, printed uh, media are being completely overtaken by digital media? I think the short answer now is is yes. And we can see this on on every front. We can see it, of course, from the business, terms of business and revenue and, and survival. Uh, we can see it in terms of uh, regulation and control. Uh, it's even if you just look at the way the internet is being controlled now, um, it's the number one priority. Uh, print media are no longer uh, the focus. If, if you, um, I think this is a story that's kind of untold because the real story in China is digital growth, as you said. But um, the the death of the newspaper is upon us in China, and that may sound sort of extreme, but, um, and there will be, there may be print um, uh, products out there for some time to come. You know, we'll see newsstands, they may not go away, but if you look at um, over the last couple of years, two, three years, you can see almost uh, on a weekly, certainly a monthly basis, news of the shutdown of a major commercial newspaper. 
uh, in in a in you know a second tier city or even a large city in China will lose a newspaper that once had four or five million circulation, and they just sort of uh, casually announce that it's going away. And maybe with that announcement will be uh, some news about how the staff are being shifted to this or that product, you know, digital. But this is a painful uh, process. It's uh, of course similar to what we saw, where we've been seeing for even uh, for a much longer time outside of China, if you look at the, the, the digital change. But there was a sense in, in China that things were really good until a number of years ago uh, with print media, even to 2008. So what um, does this mean for TV and radio broadcasting in China? Um, well, I think things like radio and, and TV, of course, these... Um, these will be revived through all these tools you're talking about. You have like live streaming, you have short video, um, you have um, all, even products that allow um, individual users to create their own kind of radio programs, podcasting programs, these kind of things. Um, uh, products like Lychee, there's one that, you know, where you can set up your own account and, and have uh, from anything. If you want to do children's books and, and read them to an audience of, who might subscribe, etc. And there are even ways to create to have like revenue models with these you know it's a really diverse space um, but these print media are slowly going to go away and this is an important problem um, a big question mark if we talk about professional journalism if we think about a media kind of a big ecology are is there thing are there things happening are people launching things doing things um, the space can look really exciting right now if we look at coverage of hard news, if you look at investigative reporting, we don't see it happening as much. And it used to happen at these magazines, at these newspapers. And I think it, it, it was partly about a moment in time. It was about the, the complex political environment and economic environment, but also about the revenue model of these papers. They're really in a growth uh, period. So they could pay. They could afford to pay for uh, investigations that took uh, several months to do, uh, for example. I want to pick you up on that because that's mm -hmm. really interesting. You talked about investigative journalism, and this, of course, leads to you know getting deep into a story, spending time, um, really getting to the weeds of things. Do you think that's going to change the kind of quality and, and depth of, of uh, news coverage and the story uh, with new media? Do you think it's going to become more shallow than before? I think in some sense it, it has already uh, uh, become so in the sense that, I mean, I, I think there's general agreement that, that we don't have the kind of investigative reporting that we did back in when I talked about the genesis of our our project. You know, that was a big trend. The first book that, that I did was investigative journalism in, in, in China. That was the title of the book. And it brought together a lot of these cases where they would report on even political stories at the provincial level. You just don't see that kind of reporting now. Now, you may see reporting on listed companies, you uh, stories, economic stories from outlets like Caixin. You still do see this. It's not to say that there's nothing interesting. We just had a, a story a few days ago, uh, I think it was Monday, that the story published in Caixin, which is one of the major outlets. And it was about this uh, chemical spill they recently had. Earlier this month, I think it was the 4th of November, a chemical spill in Fujian province. And they sort of said it was handled, the local authorities. It really wasn't. So Caixin sent a reporter to, on the scene, which is great. You have a reporter on the scene reporting, working for a week or so, and then was visited one evening 
by uh, her, her door just opened while she was lying on her bed in the hotel room after having filed her story. The police come in, four officers, search the, the room and tell her that they've been looking for um, prostitutes and clients, you know, and they ask to see her ID and they search the balcony and search the bathroom. So um, this happens, right? And then she later gets an apology from the hotel that says, yes, they asked for your room key and they didn't ask for room keys for anyone else. You know, it was clearly targeting this reporter. This is the kind of thing that does happen in China quite frequently uh, with journalists. Um, but the end of the story was this week when when they actually published this account from the reporter about that. That's a really interesting story that exposes, you know, how local authorities try to sort of push back against this kind of scrutiny. Um, so I guess you, you, we can point to this as one among maybe many examples of how journalists are continuing to try to push, and that's what we always have to remember. And I think there's some capacity still there. There's interest in investigation. Chinese journalists show up at conferences where they meet with colleagues from other countries and share investigative skills, etc. But the environment is very different. It's much harder right now, that last five years under Xi Jinping, to really do the kind of coverage we would have seen before 2000, say 2010. That's exactly what I wanted to pick you up on and ask whether you think this has become more the case uh, since Xi Jinping has come to power. Um, because I recall in his 2012 speech when he came to power saying, you know, the things that he's learned from the demise of the Soviet Union. And one was, you know, the lack of control over the military, then the, the failure to fight corruption in a very systematic and thorough way. And then there was uh, the loss of the ideological sphere uh, which is, of course, to do with control of information, etc., etc., controlling what is out there, what people can consume. Do you think it's gotten more intense and, and the grip on control on what's out there in terms of the media space information has become more intensified? Uh, yeah, and I think it's, um, I would actually say it's, um, it, it's almost a different model. If we say it's more intensified, it sounds as though it may not be what you mean, right? But I think of of kind of trying the same thing with more intensity, you know. And and this, in a way, I think this was where the party was through the period that we've monitored as a as a project with the magazines and newspapers I'm mentioning, with the kind of birth of the internet, the emergence of Weibo, and you know this Twitter-like platform um, that could really push stories. Every turn. Um, the, the party was reacting like to, to waves, and some would come and surprise them, right? Uh, I think with Xi Jinping, it's much more proactive. It's as though he put his foot down and say, said, look, we're solving this problem once and for all. And even beyond that, we can say we can solve this problem once and for all now or for the foreseeable future because there's this huge digital transformation. We're at a cusp. We're at a turning point. Let's grab these trends actively now rather than reacting to them in six months or three months or five years or, or whatever. So um, I think that, it, to put it kind of simply, uh, Xi Jinping came in determined to do what uh, his predecessors had not been able to do in terms of these uh, trends. Um, and to a great extent, it's been uh, successful. And we've seen this across a whole range of things. You know, the, even the whole architecture of, of control in China has changed, you know, with the cyberspace administration, et cetera, um, uh, coming on and lots of new laws, for example. I want to push you a little bit more on that. Mm -hmm. And I want to take something that you've written um, so that our listeners can, can get a sense of the work you do. In one of your publications for the China Media Project, uh, you wrote, and I quote, 
The internet, as enjoyed especially through those portable personal computers we call smartphones, brings a bounty of convenience, empowering us in a hundred different ways. But it is also now a Trojan horse, inviting the state into our most intimate conversations, end quote. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by that? Well, um, it, it, I, I can't, to be honest, I can't remember the full context of the, of the article. Um, but, uh, you know, if I had been talking about uh, trends globally or in China, I'm sure it, uh, I was focusing on China. Of course, we could apply that to all of us, you know, and it's a conversation that we that we have. It's an ongoing uh, conversation about how we should handle these tools. And we are, you know, the point is, uh, and it's, it's, it's nothing fresh or new to say this anymore, right? We, as individuals, we are content generators, even passively. You know, we don't have to write a blog post or send a tweet to be producing content. Just walking down the street, you know, with our mobile devices, we are producing content, purchasing something, purchasing a cup of coffee. You know, we are creating data points that can be harvested about us and us as part of a society. So how to handle that, you know, how to, how to balance this against the other, other core values we might have is a huge uh, question for all of us. Now, if we go in, look at it in a Chinese context, it's even, it's more different still, because I don't think um, that this conversation is really happening. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that. People will tell you some that Chinese don't care about privacy. Uh, I, I don't believe that. I think there's no conversation because it's very difficult to have a conversation about privacy, which is going to get into questions about state power and, and what rights the state has to our information. Um, but the focus tends to be um, there's, there's a kind of optimism in the population. I think that's true in China about what technology brings. Um, and there's certainly a sense of of um, optimism and kind of forward-looking uh, from the, the leadership about the, the possibilities of uh, technology. And it has huge implications for um, Chinese. I'll give you an example in a moment. But we know, we know this is true if you look at uh, Xi Jinping's speech in uh, February 2014, I think it was, the, the origin of the Cyberspace Administration of China or the, the Central Cyberspace Commission um, under which the CAC um, is kind of the the um, enforcing body. And the he cyberspace said there, administration. That's right. Of China. Cyberspace administration of China. And he said that the uh, without cybersecurity there is no national security. Right. So the link between the cybersecurity and core national security. And without digitalization there's no modernization. What this means, the future of China, you know, you used to be able to talk about the modernization of China as an industrial problem, right, with factories, et cetera, the need to upgrade um, uh, technologies, et cetera. Now communication technologies, the digital, is seen as the, as the future. To, to, to really continue to develop in China and modernize, digitization is the key. So there you have both. You have this impetus, this push to develop the digital Internet Plus is, you know, a policy that they had too. the Internet of Things, etc., as the real growth engine of the future. And at the same time, the uncompromising goal of control, the party's control, because that's what national security really refers to here, is also about the stability of society and the stability of the role and rule of the Chinese Communist Party. So you can hear both of this, uh, both of these um, here. Since we're talking about the Cyberspace Administration of uh, China, the CAC, 
what does what what what's the what does this mean? I mean, the fact that they are you know the internet regulator. What does this mean in terms of um, censorship in China? Because you know they are controlling cyberspace, and there is an increase of digitization um, of media. What does this mean in terms also of verification of information that's out there? Um, by verification, you mean. How how true how, facts how are you know, in the in the area in the era of fake news? How do we know what's out there is really the truth, if you will, in big quotation marks? Yeah, well, the party has its own vision of the truth, uh, and the, the CAC, the Cyberspace Administration, now um, we can say you know over uh, really the Central Propaganda Department, certainly over the Information Office, which used to be where internet controls were centered under the State Council. So think of think of the entire control apparatus for internet and digital as being elevated, in a way colonizing the rest of the control apparatus. It's where everything will be in the future, which is why the CAC is so important. Um, but truth, you know, what is truth? If, for example, you know, we're sitting here in Berlin, if you want to talk about the refugee issue um, and look at how do Chinese talk about the refugee question. Um, if you go onto the WeChat platform and you harvest posts you know, by students here or students responding and discussing in China, you will find a lot of IFD, you know, Alternative for Deutschland posts. You will find a lot of alt-right posts. There's a lot of misinformation that circulates in the Chinese social media space, um, and it's allowed to thrive there. Is there an interest in truth or fact-checking or none of this? You know, what matters um, really is is the, um, the the information that's of core interest to the, um, uh, the to the party, or it's that's in their core interest in removing or redirecting. So this is still the way they think. It's very much about redirection or what they used to what they still call guidance of public opinion. It's about thinking about the public and the people as a kind of force that needs to be harnessed. Um, you said censorship, and that's our word. We, we can't not use this word when we talk about these kinds of things, but it's not a word that's often used in the mainland Chinese environment. They talk about guidance of public opinion. It's about um, sort of massaging, manufacturing, redirecting, um, the voices and and ideas, and it's a project. It's a think of it as a as pro probably the largest infrastructure project in in China. It's not bridges or roads or canals or anything else. It's information uh, control. Um, so um, I, I might have gotten away from your your question here uh, with the cyberspace administration. There's so much, uh, of course, to talk about. Of course, and I think we can spend an entire podcast just talking about the CAC. Um, but there is so much to cover, and I want to pick you up on, on this project. That's a really interesting way to put this. Um, and I'm thinking about the social credit system, which I think some of our listeners may be aware of. The Chinese state plans to fully implement what they call the social credit system by 2020. And now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in a nutshell, it's basically that any individual citizen in China can be ranked or get social credit that can either reward them or punish them depending on how they behave and how they are perceived as being, you know, you know, towing the party line, if you will, or just being a, you know, a good citizen, whatever that means. Um, for some people, this may seem almost like a dystopian future. And I think there is even a Netflix, uh, <laughs> a, whatever series that kind of talks about this uh, potential right. future. Do you do you get a sense of how this is being perceived in China by Chinese citizens? Well, I think um, first of all, social credit 
um, and I think some people would now tell us we should say almost so-called social credit system. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about um, what exactly the system, if we call it a system, right there. That's that that kind of reifies it, makes us think of something very concrete. Again, like a kind of infrastructure, something that's being built, and and we'll know when the scaffolding comes off, and it will be unveiled and nice and new and shiny, and um, and of course scary. I think as we often hear it reported, but there's a lot of I think misreporting of this because it's a very. I mean, let's face it, it's kind of a, as a dystopian story, it has a kind of sexiness. And we like, um, we can imagine this, this kind of, um, this dark scenario where, where everyone's data is harvested. Um, we, we fear this, I think, with, without China even in the picture. It's some, as I said, these, these, this kind of um, complex of issues is something we think about and, and we should. But in China, I think it's more social, what we call social credit and what we see kind of reported in the headlines as the social credit system is really kind of now a, a more or less loose um, constellation of different programs. Um, and I confess I'm not an, a, a, an expert in particular in any of these um, uh, programs. You know, if you look at, say, Alibaba, what they're doing, I mean, some people include things like um, online mediation of disputes and things like that. You have, um, and then you have uh, systems like the, the uh, video surveillance in China. All these kind of um, are part of this larger constellation that I think as a foundation, it's about the Communist Party's willingness or the Chinese government's willingness and interest in harvesting all of these data points and using them to create um, a kind of social fear. They wouldn't talk about it in that way, but that's what it does. It creates a fear. Fear has always been the mechanism that works press control or censorship. Mm -hmm. Editors don't respond to specific directives so much as the fear of of the implications of doing a piece, self-censorship, etc. So if you create the system that makes you think about your actions and the consequences for school your child can go to, et cetera, a whole range of issues, your career, um, this is a great way to exercise the kind of social and political control we know that the party has, has traditionally been interested in, right? But I think we have to be very careful in um, right now thinking about it as a system that's going to have a grand unveiling. And um, there are a lot of things that are problematic in, in, in thinking about this. When I, um, I can give you one example, um, but the, I mentioned earlier the South China Mor or, or sorry, the Southern Metropolis Daily newspaper in, in uh, Guangzhou, and they did an interesting piece a couple of years ago where they said, okay, advertised on WeChat are all of these uh, services that say, for a price, we can track a certain person, or we can buy, in, we can give you information on a person, where they were, what hotel they stayed in. And the reporters basically said, okay, is this true? And they followed this up, and they were able for a few hundred yuan, you know, 20, 30 euros, to buy Profiles. They were able on a colleague to buy a profile on, to, or, or a record of the hotels that they had stayed in and checked into going back like 10 years or something like this. And A, you think, what does this mean? Well, you may have regional or national databases, uh, say police databases that already can be accessed you know, and shared across that are kind of maybe part of the building blocks of this kind of system. But it tells you something else too, which is that this information is valuable. And it is being already 
marketized and there's this kind of rent-seeking process. People are, are, are abusing it already. And this reminds us how China often works. So from the outside, we could look at China and think, oh, they're building this Orwellian um, or dystopian system. Uh, and it is scary to think about those potentials. But the way things often work is very, very messy. So um, think about a scenario where you have a social credit system of some sort that works like this, and then people with money or with connections are able to subvert that system and able to doctor their profiles so their kid can get into the right college or travel overseas. What would happen to that system? So you can almost imagine if we're thinking kind of sci-fi here, right? You can project scenarios where the system starts to fail in the very thing it's supposed to accomplish because of you know, the way that power works. So it's like we have to come away from, sometimes away from the technology and the potential in the technology, which is there, I think, and then also focus on the way power system, the way power works in China, the way the government and the party actually work in China. If we look just at the technology piece, I think that's when we tend to have these kind of uh, doom and gloom scenarios. Not to say that those couldn't, couldn't happen. Um, and I think uh, one thing I would point to you know, I've done some more writing on like the Dazzling Snow Project. Not sure if you've heard of this in no, Chinese. No, can you explain a little? Um, it, it's called the Xueliang Gongcheng. And it comes from this saying from Mao Zedong that the eyes of the people are as bright as the snow. It's this idea really means, um, uh, it meant really at the time that Mao Zedong is right. Whatever he says is right, right? So you'd, But you'd see it in an editorial. It would mean you can't deceive the people, sort of. You know, and then and then you'd have the newspaper lay down sort of uh, the the Maoist perspective, right? And 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 um, attribute this to the people, so the people can't be deceived. This has been turned around in this idea of the the dazzling snow project, um, and it's a video surveillance system for the countryside and kind of second tier cities. But it involves literally the purchasing and installing and networking of. Um, uh, video monitoring everywhere. Um, and there's a corresponding system for the cities. Now, this is a very specific set of projects, two projects that we can, you know, you can type in, you can look them up, and you can find documents where they're discussing them and where local governments will say, hey, we installed X number of cameras. You can actually see it happening. And I think those kind of things are really worrying. So those, again, those are being networked and, and, and going online. Um, so uh, the skepticism I kind of just expressed is not to say that these things aren't happening uh, in China. Let's switch gears uh, yeah. a little bit and talk about, uh, you know, your work and experience uh, in Hong Kong, uh, because you've spent quite a bit of time there. You travel back and forth uh, to Hong Kong and, and, and here in Europe. Uh, Hong Kong has been considered a bastion of press freedom for a long time, and uh But this has been changing uh, over the years. And I think most recently, a colleague from the Financial Times had his visa revoked. And that's been in the media a lot. What is the impact of China uh, on media in Hong Kong since 1997, when Hong Kong was returned to the mainland? Well, it, 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 it's funny that you phrase it that way, the impact of, of, of Hong Kong or or. China on Hong Kong because we used to talk. I the remember ten years ago when yeah. we used to, you know, because we would we would have uh, uh, meetings with journalists. We'd bring over investigative reporters and 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 um, 
you know, do research together and that kind of things. And and we could talk about when you look, for example, at the the Nanfang or the southern in in Guangdong province, the media, which long had a reputation as being one of the most freewheeling and and um, kind of daring uh, media, and there are a lot of them in that area. Uh, Hong Kong was. To, to to a great extent, kind of an inspiration, you know, uh, and they were very interested. I think keen about Hong Kong as a as a as a space to look at and and study from. That's totally changed. So you're absolutely right. It's kind of in, in some of it's implied in your question there, that that the the impact on Hong Kong. I think it's huge. Again, there's so many threads we could talk about. Um, publishing. We know with the there's the the uh, Causeway Bay books. Um, you know, the abduction of Gui Minhai, et cetera. Um, these are huge cases uh, uh, for, of course, because you have, uh, you know, a foreign national in Hong Kong abducted and taken to China. Um, and that's, uh, you know, a major um, uh, violation, I, you can say, of, of Hong Kong's um, uh, sovereignty. And that's, maybe I'm using the wrong word. Maybe I shouldn't autonomy. use the word sovereignty. Yeah. Yeah, I misspoke. Um, this is, you can tell this is such delicate territory. Yeah. We, we, we I think you meant we Hong Kong's our, autonomy. Let's just yeah, put autonomy. Let's say autonomy. Um, you have to be careful here. Um, right. But um, with publishing, even before the, the Causeway Bay uh, books incident, you could sense publishing in Hong Kong changing. And I mean, you would hear that uh, it was difficult for some publishers to to warehouse their books or find a printer. Um, it became more difficult to print things across the border in Shenzhen materials for for Hong Kong. Um, and you know, this has continued. Um, I some of these examples I don't really want to be too open about, but you know, I know of plenty of cases where you had um, a publisher who um, would publish your books. Um, and the sort of nature of the books never changes. But then one, imagine, you know, you have a the, the purchase of a majority stake in that publisher by a mainland connected entity. And then suddenly the, the, the spectrum shifts, and they no longer are interested in publishing your books. So I mean, this is the kind of with Hong Kong, it's been this progressive uh, change like this, where the spectrum has has uh, shifted. Um, and you know, I think the, the the more that connected Hong Kong and and mainland China have become in terms of business interest, et cetera, um, there's a lot of of impact on the press in Hong Kong that's harder to see, um, you know, because um, advertisers even are worried about you know whether they um, how it affects their business and the perception of the you know the authorities in China if they advertise in a in a certain Hong Kong in one Hong Kong newspaper versus another etc so all of these are pressures um, and of course self-censorship has long been uh, a problem in Hong Kong and I still sort of feel that that maybe Hong Kong isn't uh, used enough to its full advantage it doesn't have a uh, its press isn't as good as it could be you know we talk about the erosion of the space and I think there are things that tell us that's true but there's still so much so much space um, so I still, part of me feels too that we, we can do better. I'm trying to f formulate the question in my head, but earlier you talked about how there's a certain kind of fear that, uh, the state in China may be projecting and people want to kind of be careful and like, you know, don't not step out of the way at the same time. It seems like, you know, 
the fact that China is trying to influence or, or control the media space in Hong Kong also suggests that Hong Kong is seen as, as a threat, maybe, or can, can destabilize something in China. Is that fair to say? Is that why there's this kind of subtle and sometimes not so subtle, quite explicit um, intrusion uh, of the Chinese authorities into you know, Hong Kong? Is it fair to say Hong Kong represents a certain threat? I think the perception, I think that it's it's possible. You know, we don't always know. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to know. Um, and, and in some ways, I guess, I suppose it could be careless for us to speculate on, you know, within within the leadership, you know, in, in, uh, in, in, up in, in Beijing, for example, how exactly are they thinking about Hong Kong? Again, we get indications, even cases like the Victor Mallet case and the denial of this visa. This is a sign, you know, but what, how did this exactly did this take shape? You know, we don't, we don't yet, um, we don't yet know. But I think in some, these things do tell us that certainly that's the perception that Hong Kong is um, uh, perhaps a threat. Um, you know, it could be uh, the, the sort of, I mean, of course, publishing and media are a part of it. Um, I think uh, we have to recognize that, that Hong Kong is still a really important piece of, of understanding and looking at China. I mean, try to try to imagine globally how we, we see China going out, right? We see China investing everywhere. We see China is a global story now. It's so important that we understand China. We have to see through. There has to be some transparency. Otherwise, we do kind of fall into fear. And China should understand this better, that transparency and openness are an answer to this fear, including look at what's happening with, you know, investment. We have new investment rules we're talking about in Europe, scrutiny of investments, this kind of thing. And a lot of this is because of this lack of transparency, right? But I think Hong Kong plays a really key role in this respect. If we talk about business and finance and all of this in analyzing China, reading China, reporting on China, it has this role. It's kind of part of what keeps the window kind of open, you know, with uh, with respect to to China, so to the extent that there's an interest in in exercising greater control over Hong Kong as a space that generates these kinds of voices, um, you know, I think that's uh, really really worrying. Um, but it does seem that under Xi Jinping, there's been some kind of um, key shift, and I'm not exactly sure where to put it. You know, again, I'm often focused on even more narrowly on on media issues, but Sovereignty has become a big, a big, big issue under Xi Jinping. We see it again and again, examples big and small, even um, things like these kind of uh, cyber attacks on, on Tsai Ing-wen, you know, the, the president of Taiwan, her Facebook page and um, uh, attacks on airlines or other businesses that, that on their online booking may mention Taiwan as a separate territory. And they, you know, these kinds of um, odd um, cases of enforcing of sovereignty have really been on the rise in the last five years. Sovereignty is a big issue. You have Xinjiang, of course, we won't get into Xinjiang. That's a um, whole different A whole different ballgame. Right. But, but I think in some, to some extent, Hong Kong has fallen under this mantle. And it's, of course, Occupy is um, is a is a major part of that, um, but um, I think that's possible that this is the lens through which they're now mm -hmm. seeing Hong Kong, um, which means that that perhaps strategically it's not separate anymore. Maybe for the, maybe for the, um, for Xi Jinping, um, 
he's he's not so interested anymore in this one country two systems i don't know but i'm reluctant to again we 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 have to avoid i, I think too much speculation s- speculation and i and i certainly don't um uh, support the the kind of extreme um, statements speculative about you know the 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 death of hong kong etc the coming of the end mm-hmm. you know i think um that we we should focus on um uh, what we're what we're doing right mm-hmm. about we should focus on uh, we shouldn't announce the 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 end of hong kong too prematurely as a Hong Konger, I have to say yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's let's zoom out a bit uh, for a second, and uh, because you talked about you know cyberspace and so on, the Fifth World Internet Conference, uh, which is an annual international event organized by the Chinese government agencies to discuss internet policies, uh, recently took place uh, in the beginning of November. What, in your opinion, is China's stance on global cyberspace? I think. Um, you know, I mentioned um, sovereignty. I keep mm-hmm. coming back to this word, yeah. word even when I don't intend to. Um, uh, cyber sovereignty, uh, I mentioned earlier, is a big concept for China. So remember I said um, you have the the genesis in 2014 of this whole new structure of control, and Xi Jinping makes this statement about cybersecurity and national security. So, so security, sovereignty, all these things. This comes into the Internet. Um it's seen as a core space. And the problem with the internet is that it's not just um, uh, bounded by national boundaries. You know, it, it is um, to some extent a global thing, right? So so it presents a unique uh, problem for China. And we can kind of understand the shift in thinking if we if we consider that in the very beginning, in, in the late 90s, when they started regulating the internet, when it started in China, that was centered in the information office of the state council. So under state council, the Chinese government, and then you have um, the information office, which is responsible for the external messaging of China. So China Daily, the English language newspaper, is published by the information office, and that's where the controls were. So that tells us that the internet was seen as something alien, something outside, right? Um, and that's where it was situated. Now it's core. So consider that the CAC and the Cyberspace Commission are at the very top with Xi Jinping as the head of the commission and CAC as the kind of implementer of these policies. So um, the digital and internet are absolutely core. Um, you know, as I was saying, as I was saying earlier, um, uh, where, where were we going with this question? <laughs> What is China's stance on global yeah. cyberspace? Right, right, right. Are you talking about sovereignty right. and security? Yeah, exactly. So, so the 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 old idea is kind of the internet is something external, and then we see it moving to become central, right? Central to the Chinese Communist Party and maintaining control, but something central that's at the same time something global. How do you deal with that? You know, so I think um, one of China's interests is in really pushing this idea of national sovereignty into cyberspace. And it has not been subtle about this. I mean, if you read the official discourse, it essentially says that one great contribution of China to um, sort of theory internationally is this idea that cyberspace should be that, that there should be, uh, it, they've basically brought the concept of national sovereignty into cyberspace. 
you hear them talk about it in this way. Um, they would like this idea to to spread the idea that you know I have my internet policy and you know my own um, technical means of of enforcing that sovereignty, my own system, and those are respected by you, right? We, um, of course, it's never that simple, right? But this is the idea: you stay out of the business of how I regulate my internet. Um, and I think so part of it is to avoid these kinds of criticisms. It wants to lead this debate about how governance should happen um, globally. So that's a real goal. And then specifically, you hear even we had a story um, uh, uh, recently reported, I think it was Human Rights Watch, did this uh, uh, report about um, uh, pressure on Twitter users. Um, so Chinese users of Twitter who would be visited by authorities and told to remove their accounts or remove posts, um, and, you know, fairly well, well documented. So there are a lot of examples of how, um, China's, this, this kind of, the stance that China has, um, is, does affect, um, the rest of us, uh, globally, even we, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I were to step into the Chinese authority's shoes and try to see it from their point of view, I, it makes sense, I mean, to kind of bring your sovereignty from you know the real world to the virtual world um because of what you said earlier the way they see sovereignty the way they understand um the issues of sovereignty and security and it's all bundled together do you do you think there's traction for this in other countries as well um yeah i think certainly that uh there's attraction for some countries you know iran has been cited as an example um in emulating, uh, you know, China in, in, in also implementing this sort of technical measures it uses to to uh, uh, control the Internet. Um, so, you know, this could be, yeah, so certainly something that we continue to see in the future, this kind of export mm -hmm. of this technology, the hardware and software of, of um, uh, cyber control. In a sense, this is inevitable. And China, of course, is way ahead of anyone else if we see it as a race in this kind of um, um, you, uh, almost arms race. Because we're talking about, we always talk now about these things, the digital and cyberspace as a kind of new um, uh, arms race. This is increasingly, unfortunately, the, the language that we hear. It's a recognition that these are not just lifestyle technologies, right? They have implications. It's not just China who understands they have implications for sovereignty. I mean, it's a discussion in the EU, obviously, in the United States. Um, and we see it in concerns about even buying technology from the likes of Huawei and, and ZTE, you know, Chinese companies in the United States, for example. Um, but but uh, yes, I think is the answer to your question, um, certainly. But we see um, the question, too, is about values and to what extent these um, Chinese values um, uh, will be um, sort of infect our own, um, the, the global conversation. You know, if you use WeChat, you know, I use WeChat, how do we ensure that the WeChat, you know, this service by a Chinese company, isn't somehow compromise our own security? Where is the, where is information about us as users kept? You know, is it kept in China, et cetera? Um, these are all uh, concerns. We even had, you know, the case, the interesting case in with Mercedes in, in Germany, where they had a post, um, an advertisement that referencing the Dalai Lama, you know, and they were attacked and, and they, um, they, they, um, they bowed essentially to, 
uh, you know, the, the, the demands uh, from the Chinese side, even though this was something published on Instagram and not technically accessible in China. You know, so you have uh, these, these really interesting cases, and I think we'll see more and more of these, where um, the Chinese values, in spite of this idea of kind of cyber sovereignty and national sovereignty um, uh, that assumes a kind of border, and I have a right within my borders to do, we see that what you your values within uh, w- within the borders, as it were, in cyberspace, really aren't contained. They do affect us somewhere else. So um, yeah, I think this is this is going to continue as a as a big debate. We're coming to the end of our time, David. Um, but I want to leave with leave you with one final uh, thought from from your end. You've been working with the China Media Project for, I guess, almost a decade now, right? The last well, 10 years? Yeah, uh, 14. 14, years, yeah. even. Um, looking into the future, as China develops, uh, both as a country, economic power, uh, also within the cyber realm, um, where do you see China Media Project moving uh, vis-a-vis China? And how do you think your work will change as China develops into the future? Well, a big a big concern, um, of course, we we always looking at policy, you know, um, uh, and uh, fortunately or unfortunately, China is always giving us, uh, you know, especially now with the CAC, always coming out with new regulations. Uh, you know, we just had one last week on the need to set up these um, systems, but anyone who's providing uh, kind of information or public opinion related service, uh, operating a media, needs to uh, produce these evaluation reports about security, security evaluations, this kind of thing. So these policies continue to come up. So one thing we'll do is to watch uh, the space, how control is um, enforced. But the other side of control is always change. And we always have an interest in professional activity of journalists, if we call them journalists now with, with kind of double quotations, right? What is a journalist? And this is transforming along with this uh, digital transformation. Look at the WeChat space and public accounts, and there is a lot of interesting activity. If you want to read people writing about history or nonfiction or, um, you know, all sorts of information from medical stuff to education, there's a lot that you can find on these platforms. But where is journalism going to go? Um, because if we can imagine uh, the next moment, like our 2003 when the China Media Project was founded, well, what is that next moment going to look like that we hope will come where these you know, young journalists working in these digital, new digital uh, products um, turn and do really important stories, maybe even investigative stories, um, where they're producing valuable information? To some extent, like I said, it's happening a bit now, um, but we have fewer examples, as I said earlier, of really good in-depth and investigative reporting or responding to sudden breaking, you know, huge stories, uh, natural disasters and things like that, or industrial accidents um, tend to be better better controlled now. Um, so that's one area that I'll really focus my interest is the the kind of professional activity of journalism. And the, the thing is, we really don't know right now. Um, so much of, of what we end up focusing on is the regulatory side. So look, for example, those regulations last week and the response from uh, WeChat, because now they have a whole system. They have to implement the system of, of security evaluations, 
you know, and they have to, um, this is a cost for companies, right? You have to have people to, to implement and conduct these evaluations. So one response that they had was to reduce the number of public accounts that you can have. Um, as an individual, now there's only one. You used to be able to, it was possible as, an, as a, as a per, to have two accounts. Now it's one, right? If you're a company, it used to be five. Now they're saying it will be two. So in a way, this is already shrinking the space, the potential of the space, because they have these regulatory demands. You know, So this is often where, our fo- unfortunately, where our focus has to be. Well, I'm afraid we have to leave it there. I um, want to wish you the best of luck with your work, David, and thank you very much for joining us again today. Thank you. This episode of the Global Futures Podcast was presented by me, Joel Sandu, and produced by Sonia Sugubova, with support from Jill Van Devala from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest was David Vandersky. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.